Well, amen, my friends, amen. Good morning, First Family. It is a delight to be with you this morning. A first, a word of gratitude to our friend Dr. Shumi Odorale for pinch hitting this morning. Our friend Jeff Wash is feeling under the weather. We'll pray for him in just a moment. Let us jump right in to Revelation 20. The millennium begins as Jesus reigns and Satan is bound. You know, this passage is one of the trickiest that you will find anywhere in the New Testament. There are questions that we can't answer that this passage proposes. There are things that we go, now, wait just a minute, John. Could you clarify that bit you just said one more time? Explain it a different way so that I might really understand. This is the trouble we have. We don't have the opportunity to ask John any questions. For some, they have fretted so much over how to understand this, they've missed this main point altogether. Jesus reigns. Oh, man. Let's not miss this part. Jesus reigns. He is in charge and always will be. There is never a time he isn't in charge. But when we see this part right here, let us write over the top of this passage, over the top of this chapter, Jesus reigns. That's all we really need to know. What if, what if, so Tuesday of this week, I had to run down to Houston for a quick meeting. I want you to imagine this with me. What if I had come onto that plane and gotten worried about the aerodynamics and the functionality of the jet engines? What if I had elbowed my way into the cockpit and sat down in those seats that aren't big enough for me in the first place and said, until you explain to me how this operates, the functionality of the jet fuel being fed into the, the engines and being forced out the back, until you explain to me how a vehicle this heavy can go fast enough to raise itself up 35, 40,000 feet in the air, travel at such an amazing rate of speed, 500-something miles an hour, and land at exactly where you want it, even in the fog. There is such a thing as fog. I found it in Houston this week. Even in the fog, you can do that, then I'm not going to fly. They would have said, well, all right, we'll meet you back here when we come back. You ain't going. Because we ain't got time for all that nonsense. There are some things that just are. Can I tell you today, my friends, we're going to ask some tough questions today. Not all of them this morning. But we're going to ask some tough questions about this, this passage because they deserve to be asked. Some of them we'll take up tonight. If you are one who is familiar with this passage, then you might say, I've been waiting for this, Darren. Then probably for you, you're going to need to come tonight to the five at five. When I started working on five at five, I started with about 20 questions. I worked it down. You'll be glad to know. Otherwise, we'd liable to be there until tomorrow morning sometime. But when we dive off into this, I don't want you to miss this point. Jesus reigns. Don't miss that. Don't lose sight of it in your eagerness to understand every other corner. That's the real impetus behind this whole section some will read it one way and say the millennium has already started. 
Others will read it as if to say the millennium doesn't exist in a real fashion anyway. Still others will say it's still yet ahead. But all of them can agree on this. Jesus reigns. Now, you might be saying, Darren, I've been waiting for you to talk about the return of Jesus. Today is your day. Because somewhere between Revelation 19, verse 11, and Revelation 20, verse 6, the return of Christ happens. Well, wait a minute, Darren. You you read and preached that passage last week. I didn't hear it. Well, it was there. We just didn't highlight it because Scripture didn't either. It's a presumption that Jesus reigns, and whether you are in heaven or on earth, he is still in charge. We get all excited about the return of Christ as well we should, but don't miss that he is just as sovereign in heaven as he is on earth and just as sovereign on earth as he is in heaven. When he returns, the translation will not be so tremendous. That's why I believe it's not that significant in these pages. But let us jump right into the passage here. Before we do, let's pray together. Today, Lord Jesus... We lift up our friend Jeff. Will you bless him with your healing hand? We pray for those in our church family, Lord, that are in the hospital, in care centers, for those who have lost loved ones this week. I pray your mercy over them. I pray your peace and comfort. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that today, for this moment, right here and now, we would remember you reign, Jesus. You always have and you always will. Your authority is not superseded by anyone or anything at any time. Let us then embrace, Lord Jesus, your lordship over our lives as well as over all that is. Meet us in this passage, Lord Jesus. It's our prayer today. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, When we see Revelation 20, let's jump right into verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Let us rejoice, friend. The angel binds Satan for a thousand years, sealing him in a pit. Now, let's make one thing clear. This pit is not hell. The term that is used is the same one that we found in Revelation 9 and 17, the abyss. Now, I've seen some things and been to some places that claim to have a bottomless pit, and maybe they did. I don't know. All I know is they throw something in and we never hear it hit the bottom. Here is just such a moment. Satan is bound for a thousand years, sealed in a pit with the victorious Christ in charge, there's no place else for him to be. Let's remind ourselves of who Satan is, what his name means. He is the accuser of the brethren. 
He is a liar. He is the one who has stolen innocence and has replaced it with animosity. He's the one who has robbed us of the, the image of God that God wanted us to have and has replaced it with selfishness, anger, bitterness, small-spiritedness. I want you today to see that Satan does not win. He loses. Imagine, if you will, that you knew before last night's game between the Chargers and the Jaguars that it would come down to a field goal at the end of the game and the Jaguars would win 31 to 30. If you were Mattress Max down in Houston with all the money that he gambles away and you knew that, how much money would you have put on that game if you knew that in advance? All of it, you might say. Friends, I want to tell you, this is a wager you cannot lose. Satan loses. The angel binds Satan for a thousand years, sealing him in a pit. Why does he do so? Verse 3 tells us that he might not deceive the nations any longer. His lies finally come to an end. But not forever. We'll raise that back in a minute. Another thing I want you to see in these first, the, the, these six verses we'll cover today, John's emphasis on a thousand years. He uses that phrase over and over again. He emphasizes the 1,000-year nature of this era. A thousand years ago, things were a little different, weren't they? A thousand years from now, they'll be different some more. Perhaps some have, as some have suggested, it's the ultimate measure of time, tens times tens times ten, a thousand years. Perhaps it's more along the lines of the, the Jewish apocalyptic belief that, that history is boiled down to seven 1,000-year sections and each one of them represents a different era and we're almost to year 6,000 on some calendars, just past 6,000 on others. And when we get to that seventh 1,000 year, it's the final segment and that's when things really begin to come together. Maybe that's when the Messiah will come according to this belief. We don't know why John emphasizes this 1,000 years, but we know this, that 1,000 years for John is a place where he hangs his hat. And he says, this is how long that will take place. We use the phrase millennium, and rightfully so, for that is the way it is understood in Greek. But there's one problem with this 1,000 years, the one that we see here. It is that Satan is released at the end of that 1,000 years. Why is Satan's punishment limited to 1,000 years here? And why will he be released at the end of it? Satan apparently, has one more mission. We might also say one more opportunity. The section we'll take up next week, Revelation 20, verses 8 and 9, tells us he will be released to awaken Gog and Magog for one final battle, bringing the curtain down on the entire created order and raising the curtain on the new Garden of Eden to be revealed in Revelation 21. 
Now, some have suggested that Satan is bound today, that he is somehow restricted and limited even now. Ephesians 6, speaking about spiritual warfare, seems to suggest otherwise. Likewise, 1 Peter 5, declaring that Satan roams about like a roaring lion. It seems more likely Satan is still free to attack God's people. If Satan is bound, one particularly wise pastor said, it must be with a really long chain. Another pastor has said, if you'll tell me why God released Satan in the first place, I'll tell you why God releases him the second time. The key part that I want you to see is the ceiling. No, not the one over our head, but the ceiling in the pit. Where are my school teachers? I've got some in here, don't I? If you're a school teacher, raise your hand. If you're an elementary school teacher, raise it just a little high. Yeah. God bless you. Let me just say thank you. We bless you. Every elementary school teacher that I know worth their salt, they uh, use a laminator. Friends, I want to tell you, I want to ask you, school teachers, in using a laminator, there are a couple of things that you need. One of them is heat, right? To seal those things together. Now, pretend that you have laminated something, that you have put those things together and sealed them, and then you change your mind. You'd like to have that back. You don't want it laminated anymore. What is the likelihood that you can do so without tearing it up? Yeah, somebody groaned in the back. Not very. This, friends, is an example of God laminating the door shut. Sealed it with heat. We know, friends, that it's troublesome Satan will be released at the end of that thousand years, but we know even then God is still in charge. Not only do we know that, we know that Satan will be sealed again at the end of that permanently. You see, when I got on that plane to go to Houston on Tuesday, I could not see Houston from Midland Airport. I believed the, pi the pilot knew where he was going, even though he couldn't see it either. What caught my attention was that I was watching out the window, and it was foggy. I'm talking about foggy now. It was foggy. And I thought, I wonder when I'll be able to see Houston. I got my answer when I saw the runway coming in behind, underneath me. It was that foggy. I believed that the, the pilot knew where he was going. I believed that he could get us there even though I couldn't see it. I believed that he had a plan. And so he circled Houston on his map and drew a line back to Midland to get us there. Can I tell you today that's what we need to do with where we intend to go. If we intend to wind up at Revelation 21, then let us start where we are. Draw a line at the new Jerusalem and draw it back to us. Let's avoid all the potholes between here and there. Those that are self-induced, really. Because when we get there, here's what we'll find. That's the second half of Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. 
Christ and his saints will reign. Let's take home a couple of things before we get to that. One, God's final victory is as certain as Satan's defeat. There's something you can rejoice in. His victory is sure. Let's take that one step further. Satan's defeat is as certain as the sunrise, and he knows it. He's just hoping you don't. He wants you to not know that so that you'll fall prey to his trap, that you'll fall prey to the things that he would choose for you, the temptation that he will present, the deception that you should look out for yourself. Can I tell you today, friends, there is a reward for those who don't. Christ and his saints will reign. Christ and his saints will reign. Let me read verses four to six one more time. Then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead will not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over the second death, over, over such the second death has no power. They'll be priests of God and of Christ and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. Let's be clear, friends. With the kingdom now instituted, the kingdom is ruled by Christ and his saints. Now that the new government, if you will, has been put in, we can rejoice because the throne has been filled. Christ. To this, I want you to go back to Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. There you'll find the Bible says that we are, are you ready for this? Hold on to your bench because this is really something. We are co-heirs with Christ. Now I want to ask you something. What right do you have to that seat? What gives you the right to sit there? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid for you to have that seat. He paid for you to have that seat. This last fall, my friend Pete Shrinkle invited me to go with him to a football game. We went to the University of Texas and we saw our beloved Longhorns play another team. We won't call them out right now, but they were the Baylor Bears. And I'd been to that stadium a lot of times. I'd been to that stadium to see lots of different teams play. I'd been there a whole lot of times. But let me tell you something, friends. I'd never been to sit in that seat. It was one of the luxury boxes that Pete had won at an auction. He, in his kindness, invited me to go with him. What price did I pay to go? Nothing. Just the good graces of my friend Pete. He invited me to sit in this seat. Not only that, there was a buffet back there, 
And then I was impressed by that, but he said, no, the real buffet's down one floor, Darren. He wasn't kidding. Goodness gracious, what an embarrassment. That was ridiculous. And I walked around going, this is crazy talk. All these hungry people out here, and I'm sitting in here with living like a king. What right do I have to be here? None except the kindness of a friend. Let me tell you today, friends, when you read this passage, I want you to say, I have no right to sit with Jesus other than the blood he paid for my debt and the friendship that he's offered to me. That's why I get to sit there. It doesn't mean I'm any better than anybody else. It just means Jesus loves me. Can I tell you today, my friends, when you walk around and you think about these people that have done things wrong, Instead of looking down your nose at them, I want you to pray that Jesus will invite them to the party too. See, we have certain classes of people in our society. And one of the most awful, we might say, are people we call registered sex offenders. Can I tell you today, you name the worst one of those and I'll tell you Jesus died for him too. I expect to see some of them sitting at the throne with us. So if you're hearing me today and you're saying, I've done too much, I can't sit there with Jesus, I'm not one of the saints, then I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, and I want you to read it again because that's who Jesus made you to be. There you'll find the description of yourself. In love, he chose you. He predestined, he adopted, he forgave, he redeemed. This, friends, is how he made you a part of his family. If you are listening to me today and you would say, I don't deserve that, then recognize no one does. It is only because of Jesus. I want you to rejoice today in that because I want you to recognize that Jesus, in his love, came to give you something you couldn't find on your own. We like to think we can. We like to think we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and and carry our own weight. I'm sorry, friends, it doesn't work that way. Spiritually, we can't do it. Jesus, in his kindness, met us where we are. It's no surprise to you that one of my favorite books in the Bible is the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, you find the story that we just call the man, the paralyzed man. For 38 years, he sat by this pool, the pool of Siloam, which is in the news recently. The pool of Siloam, he sat there waiting, waiting for his healing. On a day that started out like any other day, Jesus walks in. Jesus steps in over or around others and comes to this man and said, do you want to be made well? (laughs) No, Jesus, I just like lounging here by the pool. When the man answers yes, Jesus raises him to his feet. I want to ask you, what did that man do to deserve it? Nothing. And that's grace. You need some grace today? Let it fall into your heart. Let it be something that comes for you. 
Two last things, and then we'll take it home. There's a question without an answer. Is this a literal 1,000 years or a spiritual one? There's a strong argument for both ends. Yes, a literal 1,000 years or no, a literal 1,000 years. The reading of this, in my mind, is a literal 1,000-year kingdom with an unclear starting or ending point. When we recognize Christ's rightful place as Lord over all times, not just that time, then we can begin to embrace the flexibility and maturity necessary to not demand exactness that God's word doesn't give us. So before you get all hung up on, I've got to know if this is literal or spiritual, let us go back to where we started this talk and say Jesus reigns over it all. Now, verse 6, God's blessing on the resurrection of the dead. Akin to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus declares, blessed are, God proclaims a blessing on those who share in the resurrection. The resurrection, it doesn't seem to be merely a physical one but rather a spiritual one, too. Whatever the emphasis, spiritual or physical, the emphasis is on that Christ is the one who has raised him. The order is significant, but not as much as the resurrection itself. The blessing in verse 6 points to God's deliverance to those who are his own. Herein links up Scripture with 1 Thessalonians 4 and the trumpet call of God, raised to perfect life for all eternity forward. For those not raised, there is yet a second death, an eternal one. For those who are raised, that second death doesn't exist. We need not fear it. The second death comes for those who've demanded their autonomy who've demanded their own lordship over their own life, and God grants their request permanently. Like Satan, they declare themselves free from God and his blessing. With sadness, God grants them such freedom, but only to their own destruction. Have you ever considered something, husbands, and you were maybe a little bit uncertain about it, so you went to speak with your wife about it. And your wife gives you that look and just one word in response. Fine. This is a conversation I had with my son on Friday. I could tell by the look on my wife's face the answer was not fine. So I stepped in and saved my son from a fate worse than death. She did not mean fine. She meant don't do it on your life. Why? Because my beautiful wife knew better. She knew it would not be in our son's best interests. But she loved him too much to just tell him no. Can I tell you today, friends, our God who saved us 
redeemed us and purposed us for his own heart, who created in us in his own image and sent his son to die for our benefit, longs for you to come home to him. You see, that second death is still coming. We'll take it up next week, and I want to warn you, friends, it's terrible. But yes, even over that, Jesus is still Lord. And if you are hearing this, then here's good news for you. It is not too late. You can choose differently starting right here and now. I want to give you two things to take home with you. One, trust God and his timing in with what we don't know. There has been more ink spilled over the verses we've talked about today than perhaps any other section in Scripture. Instead of tearing ourselves apart with what we don't know, let's just trust God with what we do. Finally, rest in God's saving power and our home with him, regardless of when or how we get there. Today, friends, is a day that we can rejoice because we know our God, in his goodness, has taken us home. Let's pray together. We know today, Jesus, your lordship and your reign are secure. Even in our anxious moments, we can trust you I know, Lord Jesus, that you win in the end, and so we trust you with that. Would you show your mercy, Lord Jesus, right here and right now? To those who need to respond, Lord, I pray that you would indeed call them to that. In this brief invitation time, I pray, Father, they would start coming already. And that today would be the day, Lord Jesus, we would say yes to you your lordship, your leadership, your grace, your kind offer, not out of fear that second death will come for us, but out of joy that you wanted us in the first place. Would you do that in us now, Lord? We trust you with it. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.